the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our epistle lesson invites us into a complex commentary on the covenants that God made with Abraham and Moses. To Abraham, God promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, and that one of his descendants would be the bestower of that blessing. With Moses, God defined the terms of faithfulness called the law, by which the world would recognize Israel as a chosen people, and by which the Israelites would recognize among themselves the true children of Abraham. St. Paul notes that the law serves to gather all under a common recognition that none of them, by the terms of the Mosaic law, are to be deemed worthy of such a name as child of Abraham. Israel's constant failure to uphold the law created a profound question over the centuries over over who then could be that inheritor and bestower of the blessing promised to Abraham. All, even the great Moses, had failed to do so. To all those awaiting the seed of Abraham and the blessing he would bring, the law became a spur, a reproach, and a teacher. The law forbade all ways of life but those that would lead to the promised blessing. The law pointed to the severe cost of bringing back into the way those who had departed from it. But the law could never deliver the promise itself because the horizon of that promise always exceeded the reasons for and the lifespan of the law. When the seed of Abraham at last appeared, the promise and blessing of God was bestowed on the seed, and the law's last purpose in that moment would be to proclaim his arrival and summon all the little seeds of Abraham to the seed for his blessing. That St. Paul addresses this profound relationship between promise and law with such complexity and nuance presumes the presence of errors in that, in need of that correction. And one such error was the occasion of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. It helps for us to know that the Samaritans and Jews both came from the family of Abraham, but were divided historically after the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests. In the aftermath of those cultural calamities, Jews and Samaritans alike would try to create an identity for themselves at the cost of the other. Both would claim to be the true children of Abraham, the true upholders of the law, and that the other group was hopelessly compromised and lost. Jesus' parable confronts this entrenched ancestral animosity among the warring children of Abraham. He who is both law and the true seed of Abraham comes now to address their divisive use of the law and how that use betrays their, how little they understand it. Jesus begins by commending and building upon the comments of a scribe, which is an expert in the law, who shows that he's already acquainted with a deeper uniting principle among and through the 613 laws of Torah. 
he correctly says uh, that all of the laws are really articulations of the two great commandments to love God and to love one's neighbor. What he fails to perceive, though, is how these laws of love indict the very ways that the scribe and his fellow Jews have defined themselves as so-called faithful Israelites. How they have taken these symbols meant to provoke mercy and unity and have made them the tools of division. We see this most clearly in the Gospels, in the religious figures of Jesus' day. And in Jesus' parable, we see this most clearly in the priest and Levite, how they are the embodiments of these diverse legal interpretations that each miss that deeper meaning. From the perspective of the Levite and priest in the parable, they are clearly obeying the law in steering clear of an apparently dead body, which would, if they got near to it and touched it, would make them ritually unclean, and thus they'd be unfit to do the work of the temple and serve the people of God. They're doing, in the parable, what they're supposed to do. To them, they're serving God by walking on the far side of the road, and the letter of the law is their rationale for keeping this distance intact. The Samaritan, by contrast, recognizes in the wounded man something undefined in the parable that moves his mercy enough to get closer, despite the likelihood of his being declared unclean. He gets near enough to realize that there is life that requires attending to and cares for him with his own means of transport and livelihood. As the scribe would say, he loves his neighbor as he would himself. But recognition is only the prologue to merciful action. As Jesus concludes, the scribe must now and go and do likewise. The scribe must go beyond merely correct interpretation of the law to live a life that is challenged and changed by the law in the direction of mercy. Only then, Will the law that he says he loves so much deliver to him the promise and blessing beyond it? The parable of the Good Samaritan is for those who see themselves as the religious inside crowd. The question it answers concerns insiders versus insiders. And that's why they're using the term neighbors rather than the long-standing Old Testament term for outsiders, which is strangers. That hits especially close to home, I think, with especially religious Christians, such as high church Anglicans. Those of us who occupy a religious world that is carved out on a kind of scalpel's edge between a multitude of almost us's and actually us's. Traditionalists, like ourselves, find it very easy to occupy the wrong space of this parable by using the things of faith to distance ourselves from each other and from Christian neighbors. If we're not prayerful and vigilant, we can remain stagnant in the spiritual infancy that is characterized by a need to exalt oneself by pushing another down. As with the law given to Israel, we can use matters of doctrine 
matters of messy historical grievances, and perceptions of gasp, liturgical inadequacy, to enable a kind of persistent spiritual immaturity that fails to see in ones who are so near, the very neighbor for whom Christ died, the very neighbor we are called to love. Even in a place as small as St. Matthew's, it can be tempting to see in people with so much in common, enough annoying differences to tempt us to strive and settle for a uniformity rather than for the Lord's creative and true unity. Unity is a paradox of harmonized differences, and we'll always find it easier to stray toward errors of division or mere sameness than to strive for the more difficult goal of holding that tension. But the difference between unity and uniformity is an important one if we're to be delivered from the divisiveness of heart that distances us and prohibits us from loving our neighbor. Israel, we'll be reminded, was delivered through and not despite its complexities and tensions to arrive at the Messiah, the one seed and his promise. The unity that Christ brings to the mess of his people's history is what we would call a simplicity that is not simple, a union that does not ignore the difficult differences and calls us all beyond those differences to a unity expressed through and in that creative difference. But we must beware, because it's very possible for us to create a church of people already like us. But we'll miss, if we fall into that error, the surprise and the actual growth that comes when we suddenly, after long patience, see in a neighbor, see a neighbor in the one that we deemed previously a stranger. And that church and that growth is what God is calling us toward today. If we will, as the psalm says, hear his voice and harden not our hearts. Profound distance can exist even just one pew apart from another. Even by the middle of Mass, like right now, all of us have experienced already the little vexations that come with being in proximity long before we talk about being in community. And with those annoyances comes the tempting belief that we would be actually perfect Christians if it weren't for all of these other sinners. But into the midst of that spiritual blindness, the Eucharist comes again to our aid, bearing the antidote. Communion, of which we are called to partake, draws us into union with God, yes, but also into union with one another as we're being drawn toward that God. It's no accident that to partake of the Eucharist requires us to get out of our pews and to get shoulder to shoulder with each other, sometimes uncomfortably shoulder to shoulder with each other. But this reflects a truth, that the closer we come to Jesus, the closer that Jesus will draw us to his other people. You can't have one without the other. So 
Take a moment to appreciate the gift of the person on either side of you at the altar rail this morning. They are your neighbor. They are the one you are called to love. It is no accident that you've been brought near one another this morning. Remember that for the scribe, it was one thing to know the law and quite another to go and do it. And with him this morning, we have now heard the challenging words of the one who always loves his neighbor, who always gets close, no matter what the cost. May we go now and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.